0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Nigel Kaplan, Associate Professor at the University of Delaware and English Language Institute. His book, Grammar Choices for Graduate and Professional Writers, was published by the University of Michigan Press in 2019 as part of the Michigan series in English for academic and professional purposes. This is the book's second edition. Where there is right, there too you will find wrong. If you can employ your La Pavoni piston-driven espresso machine so that the coffee comes out tasting aroma, then the days it comes out tasting like astronaut coffee are the days you've employed your La Pavoni wrong. Or... If a person can train their dog so that the falling tone on sit brings the dog's hiney to the ground, then the person running across a field after their furry four-legged friend pleading sit, sit, sit is doing it wrong. And when you would sew a word string like but not in tune to the stringing the people make, then clearly I'm doing it wrong in English grammar while at the same time, I'm irritating you, my listeners. My point is, if it is the case that we can build a sentence right, train a dog right, brew espresso right, then it must likewise be true that we can do these things wrong. And it is. It is true. But at the same time, it's not at all helpful. Not to the barista, or to the dog owner, or to the sentence maker. Why? because it's true in such a vaguely vacant sort of way that it's about as helpful as the truth the Earth orbits the Sun to the everyday human affairs down here on the surface of the planet. Sure, no doubt, the Earth does, in fact, orbit the Sun, and a lot would go wrong for us if the Earth ceased orbiting, or the Sun ceased being our gravitational center. But how are you going to get to work in the morning when your car's at the garage? How is your son going to ace his exams when he spends every afternoon playing in his band? And how am I going to bring this wild point about right and wrong back into today's episode with Nigel Kaplan and his book, Grammar Choices? Like this. The things anyone can do right, they can also do wrong. Okay, that's the Earth orbits the sun view. Here's the grounded, pragmatic, everyday view. A person attempting to do a thing right, whatever that thing is, is helped most when shown how to do the thing better or worse. For example, and here I take one last big step towards today's episode, for example, any writer of research in English, whether they've spoken only this language or spoken it among other languages, any research writer will always have, realistically, far, far more ways of making his or her next sentence better or worse and ways of making it right or wrong a writer doesn't attain the graduate or professional levels of research and still employ the written language as a ten-year-old would a jackhammer i.e. all over the place no writers of research have internalized so much of the functioning of english because english is so much of the functioning of their disciplines lectures grant proposals, textbooks, journal clubs, conferences, office hours, theses, literature reviews, articles. Sure, anyone can mislay a the, or take a might where a could should go, and I'm not even going to mention whom, and suffice it to say, in apostrophe's. But on the ground of the written word, today's research writer doesn't need to know how to do it right. He or she wants instead to know how to avoid doing it worse, and how to more consistently be doing it better. So we'll let the rules of grammar drift spaceward and become the cosmic microwave background of writing, because today's researcher doesn't need rules for his or her sentence-to-sentence work. Today's researcher needs choices, and not the worst ones, the better ones, which are precisely the thing that Nigel Kaplan has on offer in his book, Grammar Choices for Graduate and Professional Writers. So let's begin today's episode. Nigel Kaplan and grammar choices. Nigel, welcome to scholarly communication.
1: Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Daniel. I'm I'm excited to be here, and I, I don't think I've ever been introduced in terms of uh, background cosmic radiation before, so that was the first for me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, but <that, laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> um, in your book, uh, the philosophy is very much evidence of some sort of a genre theory, um, whether it's of the John Swales persuasion or, as you uh, state explicitly in the preface, the Michael Halliday systemic functional persuasion. I even recognize a bit of the Douglas uh, Bieber persuasion and register analysis. In any case, the, the book is really not Formalist. You don't have writers learning grammar for the sake of grammar. In fact, the notion of grammar for grammar's sake is about as far from this book as notions can get. So I suppose I'd like to start off with the question, what genre has to do with this book? And, and, and maybe even before that, what genre means to you in the area of writing?
1: Oh, thank you. That's a, a great question and a, a great observation. Um, well, genre—it's a hard word to define. But the way I understand genre is as the ways that we get things done with language in social contexts. And you know, you're right that I'm drawing from multiple theories, especially uh, functional linguistics' uh, understanding of genre, but but others too. So, if genre is the way we get things done with language, language. Um, constitutes the the primary tool we have within the genre to express meanings, multiple levels of meaning. Um, And you're right to say that that goes beyond the notion of right or wrong, the notion of sort of abstract universal rules, uh, because we see that that doesn't work. What we do see is that there are consistent patterns in the ways in which writers in particular genres, make meanings. And by making those choices, as as I call them, uh, and as many other people call them, making those choices visible uh, to the novice writer, whether they're writing in the first or an additional language, that is uh, empowering, it gives you a greater repertoire, and it allows you to do the work of the genre. So the the genre of of the you know the scientific research paper which is i think much and unfairly maligned sometimes it does the work of the discipline right and and each discipline defines that differently but we have a set of language choices that are meaningful that are functional within that genre within that context because of the kinds of meanings they make and that's what i'm trying to do with the book to to the the best extent I can. And and what I try to do with my teaching as well is to try to um, give students those tools so that they have the choice as they're trying to do this really difficult thing of writing at the graduate or professional level.
0: One of the things um, I've noticed with, with my teaching in a very similar sort of vein is once you start pointing out issues of genre. And the work that's being done in different sections of a paper, let's say, uh, just, to, just as one random example, it's not that genre is not just only about location in papers. It's about so many different things, as you well know, and as the book makes clear. Um, but j- just that sort of thing, I've often gotten the feedback. And in and, and, and another area, when I start to show them corpora and how um, you can find collocations that might serve you better, words that just tend frequently to, for this particular purpose and this particular meaning, to gravitate towards one another, to continue with our cosmic <laughs> metaphors here, um, I've often got sort of the feedback, oh, that's a little bit like cheating, isn't it? <laughs> and and, 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 it, and it's, it's intrigued me. And and this is why I, I wanted to just have your opinion on on, on on genres, because what I've noticed is that the baseline approach that many novice writers bring to writing is from literature. In other words, they're thinking English class or the comparable sort of class from their high school or early college days. And of course, that's an entirely different genre, isn't it?
1: Oh, or an entirely different set of genres, really. No, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about this um, you know, as a teacher and as a writer myself. Um Here's what I think happens and what we've seen happen is that when you are faced with a novel genre, something you've never written before, the tendency is to fall back on the familiar, right? Um, the, the genre scholar, Amy Devitt, uh, calls this genre baggage, you know, the baggage you carry with you. And it, it really depends on your background. So, yes, I suppose if you were trained in English literature, that's what you'd fall back on. For my students here in the U.S., and students, so my students are coming from all around the world, uh, but they've learned often English in a very formulaic way. They've learned it towards standardized tests. And what they fall back on is essentially the five-paragraph essay, which I've, I've, you know, I've ranted about endlessly in, in other publications and at conferences, and maybe we don't want to go there. But I, I think that that idea of falling back on the familiar rather than learning the new Is a a tendency. And the problem is that sort of leads to an attempt to make every writing situation the same. But it's not. And the language choices, the way we organize information, the word choices, the types of grammar that we choose, the way we build meanings varies from genre to genre. So there's, you know, if if you position what I'm trying to do here with grammar within a, a larger context of, writing instruction, it, it comes down to when when you're teaching a new genre or assigning a new genre, making sure students also have the opportunity to analyze texts written within that genre and to have the um, the tools, the questions to ask to understand how to write it. So I'll give you a very simple example. The first exact the first question everyone gets asked, it seems, especially here when um, uh, they're, they're assigning a new piece of writing, students always want to ask, can I use I? Can I use the first person pronoun? Right. And so many textbooks have said, do not use I. Academic writing is impersonal. It's author evacuated and so on and so forth. And To talk about all academic writing in this way is patently untrue because when you look at professional writing, you look at published journal articles and books, you'll see that in some fields and some genres and some authors use I or we all the time, or at least in maybe not all the time, but in particular parts of the text. And that has to do with the discipline you're in the type of text you're writing and the degree of authority you feel you have as an author, right? There's a difference between between being a senior scholar and a junior scholar, I think, in how you can navigate that. So these are all questions to ask. They're not rules to impose. And that choice of using I or you or we is a choice at what what, uh, Michael Halliday calls the interpersonal level of language, the interpersonal meanings. It's the way we build the tenor, the relationship between the reader and the writer. In some texts, the convention, the expectation is for that to be absent, for there to be a a distance, a greater distance between the writer and the reader, or between the writer and the text, I suppose, whereas in others, that is much more blurred. I once uh, had a, a student who, um, in my writing class, the last assignment is a portfolio. And so they have to write a reflective cover letter, you know, a very traditional uh, sort of assignment for, for this kind of thing. And uh, the student had so internalized the idea of impersonal writing uh, that he tried to write the cover letter without using the word I. And the result was 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 somewhat was quite funny and rather hard to read because it was things like, you know, much was learned in this course, much feedback was received. And by the end of the letter, I honestly didn't know if this this guy had been in my class. Had I done anything? I was rather confused.
0: Well, so, well the letter certainly had been there, right?
1: I mean, if, if I mean nothing else. <laughs> he'd, he'd learned something. I don't know if he'd learned what I was trying to get across. But um, I mean, that's an extreme example. But I've seen writers bend themselves into knots to obey supposed rules they've been taught from other contexts and other genres, right? And that, that that is, of course, compounded when you're dealing with a new language or a new culture, because there are new conventions and new patterns to learn in there that go beyond any notion of fluency or proficiency and get to this idea of linguistic
0: repertoire. You bring up new language and new culture. And I I mean, I can hear again, Michael Halliday and the systemic functional um, approach behind that, because the the new culture makes me think of the context. And this can bring us straight into, let's say, molecular biology or chemical engineering or history of um, the Middle Ages. So in other words, that too is a culture and it's not something that would first occur as as a possible meaning of it of course to to people perhaps outside of 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 these theories but it's so key to as you're saying understanding um what it is that i can say and how it is that i can say it and that's your other word the new language so the content in the SFL approach right uh, what are the meanings that these sorts of configurations of words, right? This sentence, uh, this word in this place actually do and can create. So I guess what I'm saying as I float off here into abstractions, (laughs) I guess what I'm saying is that so much is involved in writing that you wonder at sometimes, okay, are we teaching writing or are we teaching thinking?
1: Oh yes, it, it, yeah that that's a question that comes up a lot. One of my just to to take your 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 first point there about uh, disciplines being cultures into them uh, unto themselves, that's very true, and of course that goes back not just to Halliday, but you mentioned John Swales, who's sort of the um, uh, the the sort of the great figure in in that field uh, in the EAP version of genre. Um, and, and Swale's work, looking at different disciplines and doing what he called textology, where he found that even very closely related disciplines uh, housed within the same building or the same department would use language and use genres in really different ways, in ways that were fascinating. And the the step that that we go beyond. The, that sort of Swalesian approach which looks at the moves and steps within text, and we dig a little deeper into the language, we get to this notion of register. And one of my favorite uh, SFL Hallidayan precepts is the idea that register is how context gets into texts. I, I love that that idea, right? Because we sometimes imagine context as being on the outside and writing as happening purely inside the writer's head, a purely cognitivist approach. And while there is a lot going on cognitively, it's clearly not enough to explain how writing gets done or, as you said at the beginning, how better writing gets done because that's what we want, right? We want everyone wants to write better, students um, certainly do so the register choices are the ways uh, context gets into text and those choices absolutely vary among disciplines um, so I'm one of the classes I teach right now uh, is a new course we uh, uh, we have at the University of Delaware where we have a course for matriculated graduate students um, across all disciplines and it's a writing workshop class. And so I have Ph.D. students in engineering and molecular biology and art history and business and public policy. And it's just a fascinating, fascinating class to teach. And so I find that when I'm working with them on language, I I really I don't tell them do this or do that. That would be presumptive and and rather arrogant because I don't know how engineers write What I try to present are some of the choices and options and parameters, and I have them go and investigate their own texts to be ethnographers of their own discipline and figure out how this difficult work of writing gets done. Um, I think to say that writing is thinking can be a little dangerous because the corollary of that is that bad writing is bad thinking, and I'm not here to judge anyone's thought processes. I don't know what's going on inside people's heads. I, I don't really want to know that, to be honest. Um, so I'm not sure that's quite the same thing as to say that writing is the way we perform certain actions, in texts with language that do the work of the discipline. And the way we do that work is different. The work that engineers do with language is very different from the work that historians or philosophers or public policy um, students and policy makers do with language, right? So there's, there's so much going on in there. The writing can, of course, be a way to think through ideas. And muddled writing is sometimes a symptom of muddled thinking, but sometimes it's not. The thoughts are completely clear. It's the choice of register and language resources and the understanding of genre that isn't clear. Um, Can I give you one quick example? Because this one's in the book, and it's one of my favorite ones. This is how I got into SFL, by the way, which I was never formally taught, or at least very little. I had a student when I was at the University of North Carolina, I had a graduate student in, I think, biostatistics, and and she was obviously a brilliant scholar. She clearly understood her discipline. There was no sense that she couldn't think about her discipline. But she said, no, my, my professors tell me that my writing is confused. They can't understand it. And they told me to check my grammar. And she showed me a paragraph of her writing. And there was not a single grammar mistake in it. There was nothing that was traditionally a grammar error, a syntax error. But the text was indeed very confusing to read. And as I looked at it, something rang a bell. And I remembered learning in, in my first time round in graduate school, learning about the idea of old and new information what Halliday calls theme and ream, and I realized that she had consistently put new information at the beginning of sentences, in the thematic position, and English just doesn't like that, and if you keep doing that, it feels a little bit like you have to read the text backwards to understand it. When we untangled the paragraph and pushed new information toward the end of the sentence, the paragraph became so much easier to read. So it, it was grammar, but it's grammar seen from this much broader perspective as knowledge about language. That's the kind of thing I'm trying to get at.
0: And, and you, I mean, there's two things I would like to say that. You bring up this idea of what it is that might make a text, let's say, flow. Yeah, I mean, this is also an is- issue of information flow. Um, but also this idea of, okay, well, where do writing and th- Thinking inside of a culture, engage. And I entirely accept what you're saying there on the end of um, we don't need to equate the two processes. If they were the same, well, then we would have probably one word for them. Um, But I, I do believe, though, that. It's, it's probably overlooked and the response there of the professor to this uh, uh, unfortunate student who was just putting words in the wrong places, um, the right words in the wrong places, that there's a grammar problem already kind of shows, I would say, a typical view of what it is that um, writing centers or other comparable types of uh, institutes at universities are doing. They're fixing sentences, but the fact that they're actually engaging with the knowledge creation of that discipline is typically overlooked and 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 I would I would continue to argue that the thinking of the discipline is instrumental to being able to understand how to write the discipline. Oh, that uh, these things absolutely. these things j- just go hand in hand that there's no way around it that she needed to for instance see that yeah front end back end holds different sorts yeah
1: Right right and and that particular sort of pattern extends across disciplines. Um, yeah, no, I I, I do see a point. I, I just want to clarify a couple things there. One is, I, I, so I, I was working in a writing center at North Carolina and in defense of my writing center colleagues, um, and again, I don't know how writing centers work in other countries or other places, but our mantra was very much we're not fixing the writing. We're working with the writer and we don't fix sentences. That's not what a writing center should be doing. And the one I was working at would, did not do that. Now, that that is challenging as well, because sometimes that's exactly what the student wants. And in some cases, maybe even what the student needs. And that's a whole other debate. I'm I'm not in that world as much anymore. Um but I do see my role as a writing teacher and and the role of writing centers as developing the writer because it's not enough just to get the product in front of you in better shape, although that is an immediate goal and maybe an urgent goal for the student. The goal is for students to be autonomous, to be independent in their writing. They can't be, you know, they're going to leave my class, they're going to leave the writing centre, they have to be independent writers. And if they're doctoral students who are going to go into academia and become published writers and then professors and teachers themselves, they need to know how to do the kind of writing that they need to do. Now, everyone should have a writing group Everyone should have a support. Goodness knows everyone needs an editor. You should see the edits that had to be made to this book. Um, the poor editor, uh, wonderful uh, editor Kelly Sipple did so much uh, to make this into a book other people could read. And some of the early drafts were not readable. They were monstrous. So everyone needs that, however much you know about your field. But this sort of brings us to an important point about knowledge and expertise in, in a discipline, um, the, the late scholar Doreen stark Myring said that um, academic writing, doctoral writing in particular, is most um, opaque to uh, – uh, sorry, let me try that one again. Doreen stark Myring, who, who sadly passed away a couple of years ago, a great genre scholar in Canada, said that academic writing tends to be transparent – to experts in the discipline. And they forget how opaque it is to novices. So if you study engineering, biology, philosophy, whatever it is, and you're immersed in that world all the time, it's very easy to believe that that is the only way of writing, because that's the only type of writing you have done for decades. And it quickly becomes, well, that's obviously good writing. Anything else is bad writing. Without realising what we see as English teachers, especially in English for academic purposes, where we work with students across the disciplines, what we see is that each discipline does have its own way of creating knowledge and communicating that knowledge. But that can be very opaque to a novice. And I think what novices need are the tools to crack open that opacity, if you like. And what experts need is a little reminder now and then that good writing is actually not transparent. It is highly contextual. it is um, something that that needs to be learned. It is not natural in any sense. It is not automatically good writing just because you like it and it works in your field.
0: and and, and that is really actually, You've put so much better, more, what I was trying to actually say there. And that is actually what I mean by the proximity between writing and thinking, which I think the expert typically overlooks. Your uh, your caveats to not equate good thinking uh, and good writing and bad writing with bad thinking and so on is, is well placed uh, because, I mean, that's just pure discouragement for so many people. The point that I was hoping to uh, to sort of draw our listeners into there is that the context or the contexts, yeah, I'm making that explicitly plural, when you move from the philosophy to the biology to the chemistry, and not only do they see transparently through the texts that they're reading, but it's hard to take an expert biologist, for example, who spends all of that her time there in the lab and so on, out of her biological perspective on the world. So in other words, that way of expressing oneself, that way of thinking, that way of analyzing and so on, has a tendency to dominate the expert's uh, view of what is well-meant and perhaps not so well-meant, what is accurate and what is inaccurate, and so on. Oh,
1: I mean, that that is absolutely true. Um, And it doesn't follow, of course, that, you know, it's not necessarily the case that everyone who is an expert in their field is an effective communicator in that field. Um, I think we see that in in public discourse a great deal. um, And I think we definitely see it in academia. One thing I I like to tell my students to do, and this is why I, I love teaching courses that have students from across the disciplines because I think students themselves, who are themselves, you know, my graduate students are emerging experts. They are junior scholars, and many of them are published scholars in their fields. Uh, you know, there's so much push uh, to publish uh, during a doctoral study. Um, when you get students from across the disciplines, um, you really, they begin to see where choices are being made in their disciplines. And I absolutely think it is important for them to learn how to equate those with the ways that thinking is done, that knowledge is constructed and and that ideas are communicated and that it not become too transparent, that it not be um, too natural because there's there's a form of complacency there as well, isn't there, where you can end up writing uh, for such a niche audience that you know, certain – uh, choices become unquestioned or worse you find that writers can't then turn around or scholars can't then turn around and write for public audiences and you know your your podcast about scholarly communication and that's not just of course i assume communication within the scholarly community but beyond it as well, well and certainly comes, yes. yeah, yeah right and that that comes back to the importance of um, knowing the range of choices is not just limited to the ones you're in. You know, as as listeners may be able to hear from my voice, I, I don't live in the country I was born in. I I, I came to the U.S. from, from England uh, over 20 years ago. And as anyone who's had that experience of moving to another country or living in another country for a long period of time knows, you only really begin to see your own culture by living outside of it right because you begin things that seemed completely natural to you and universal you suddenly realize people do things differently here <laughs> and that's that's culture shock and that can be wonderful and it can be awful and it can be disorienting and it can be all those things but the same can happen I think in writing when writers from multiple disciplines, Or writers with different sets of genre knowledge meet, they begin to see wait, you do things differently. And maybe that's how genre innovation can occur as well. Because the other thing that we should say about genres, we've got to be cautious not to treat them as static, they are dynamic they may be moving very, very slowly. You know, academic writing tends to be conservative, little c conservative, tends to move slowly, but it does move. We've all seen it. We've all seen shifts in academic discourse. And sometimes it helps to see what other fields are doing, whether they're maybe slightly ahead or slightly behind in those changes, and start thinking, maybe I should be nudging my field in that direction too. And sometimes that is in, That comes about in language choices. We've seen that in the way that our style guides have started adopting more inclusive language, for instance, which is an important move and one we all need to be pushed towards. But until you see the system, you know, systemic functional linguistics is all about language as a system. And until you see that there are choices in the system, you don't see what meanings are being made. Perhaps unconsciously. Perhaps these meanings are uh, feel beyond your control. Um, but you have to see that there is a range of choices here. And maybe my field only uses this narrow range of choices, but that is in itself a decision. And um, sometimes it's a decision worth interrogating.
0: And, 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 and what you say uh, brings, brings me back to this uh, question asking that you were talking about before. Um, in particular towards uh, people's genre baggage (laughs) what a wonderful word that is (laughs) Um, and it has been my experience in teaching writing as well that uh, an awareness raising would appear to me to be one of the primary and constant tasks of the writing tutor to help writers uh, write at their best and and in your book in my view is an excellent exercise in uh, grammatical and meaning uh, awareness raising for sure so um, I, I guess what I'm driving at is when you're asking these questions, you need to ask them, in a sense, in two directions. And this is what made me think of this is when you said about genre innovation, genres emerging and, and evolving. I mean, you need to, in a instructive or tutoring context, make it possible for people to look back at what it is that they think of text and understand that wonderful idea, genre baggage, but also be looking forward to what it is that they'll want and also need to do with text. These these two things may not entirely overlap always. Um, It's probably in the want area very often that they're going to bring in the possibilities for innovation. I've spoken here on the program to uh, editors of different journals and never heard from them any sort of initial rejection of the idea that somebody speak in any article, even in a field like chemistry with voice. Um, clearly it's not going to be the same sort of voice that maybe a Philip Roth would have in their novel, but I mean, that would be out of place in lots of places. Wouldn't it? <laughs> but what they mean is that, um, sure, tell us in the best way possible the research.
1: Oh yes, and well, that and that term "voice" is so complex, isn't it? Right, because what we mean by voice, or for someone like Ken Hyland's stance, or for Martin and White, the idea of appraisal and evaluation in systemic functional linguistics, um, what we mean by that is is really really uh, contextualized, right? Everything. Uh, is about context. Yeah, I mean, as a writing teacher, one thing I'm very aware of is you can never teach students all the genres they will need to know. Uh, And there's a few reasons for that. Firstly, I don't know what genres they might need to know in the future. Maybe they know, don't know. I mean, what I'm doing right now, I've never done a podcast before. It's a genre I've I'm familiar with having listened to, but not having done. That's a, that's a little daunting, right? And and if it's the first time writing a conference proposal or a um, or a book or a journal article, you know, there's there's a lot that goes into understanding um, the new genre, and it does start, as you said at the beginning, there with with awareness. And I, I you know, I, my thinking here is is influenced a lot by. Uh, My colleague, Chris Tardy um, uh, in Arizona, who has written about genre knowledge, genre awareness and this idea of genre innovation in ways that I find very, very compelling. And and what 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 she has shown is that some genres are just more amenable to innovation than others. Um, And it's important to know that. Um, But at the same time, yeah, the journalists say we want voice and then, you know, you get the feedback. Well, there's too much here, right? Or this is not done the way we expect it. So, it, yeah, there there is room for innovation, but you have to know where that space is and whether you, in with your position, can occupy that space. Um, and we just finished up a. Uh, a writing textbook, another book with my colleague Ann Johns in in California, and this is a book for novice writers. This is a, a, a for writers at an earlier stage in development than than grammar choices, and. What we try to do in this book is try to explode this idea of genre by showing students all the different considerations. We call them the components that you have to think about when approaching a new genre. And they're not all important in every genre, but they're all questions you can ask. So that's thinking about the audience, the writer's role, the context and the purpose, sort of the external factors, and then the more text internal ones like structure, register, the the use and type of sources and evidence, and then the conventions. And what we're trying to do here is train students not to write the particular set of genres I've chosen for my class, but to be able to interrogate new tasks and new genres and figure out how to write them, just as you know you or I would do if we had to write a new genre. I had to write a new genre recently. I had to write a book blurb. Have you ever done one of these, a blurb on the back of someone's book? It, it was no. oh my goodness! It was fascinating. So I was asked <laughs> by um, uh, by by Bloomsbury to to blurb uh, a new book on uh, context for English for Academic Purposes. A wonderful book, in fact. And I thought, well, this is fascinating. And we'd just done a whole thing about book blurbs in 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 our new textbook. We'd done a thing where we'd contrasted book blurbs with prefaces, which is really really interesting. Actually, when 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 you look at it. And so I thought, oh, great, well, I, I know about this now because I've just done the genre analysis of book blurbs in order to, in order to write this textbook. It's like, okay, I think I know how to do this. But, of course, how do you go about writing a new genre? Well, you go and read other ge- other texts in that genre, other exemplars. You read a bunch of blurbs. You don't just read one because, who knows, that might be a really quirky example. You read a bunch of them and you figure out, okay, What's the purpose? What's my role as a writer here? I'm not the author of the book. I'm not the editor. I don't make money if they sell the book, right? So why have they asked me? I guess I'm a presumed expert. Okay, that's scary. And who's the audience? Well, it's not the reader of the book. It's the um, the potential reader, the buyer of the book. So this is kind of a marketing genre. Interesting. What's the context? Where does this appear? Well, it's slapped on the back of the book. You pick the book up at a conference and you look at the back or you see these maybe published on the publisher's website. And so then you start thinking, well, what goes into this text and what register do I use? How effusive should I be? I don't do, want to see- How state... do my
0: sentences look when they're in quotation marks as they almost always are in the blurbs, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So you start thinking about the physical medium that they're going to be uh, printed on. And it has to be pithy. It has to stand out. There's no point in me writing this if no one's going to read it. And if I like the book, and I did like the book, um, then I want to make sure that other people read it. I'm doing a service to whom? To the authors, to the editors, to the publisher, to the academic, you know, reader who might engage with this book. Um, so these are questions that I think, when you're if you're a proficient writer or you consider a, yourself a proficient writer, maybe you ask those questions instinctively when you're a novice writer you don't and that's when you fall back on the genre baggage so and one of those questions is about language it's not the only question it's a really big question but it's one of the questions within the broader um you know wheel of genre which is what how, how we look at it so to come back to your, your question at the beginning yes this is within this is situated within the notion of genre but language in itself does not constitute the genre it's, it's more than that right we, we can all see that another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply.
0: Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Yeah, and and your vivid uh, sort of walkthrough of all the questions and all the uh, concerns raised by this blurb that you needed to write is, is a perfect illustration of that, that we're we're well beyond the language. And I, what occurred to me was as you spoke, your excitement wore off on me. And, and I mean, I would get excited about something like that as well. Yeah. I mean, all of those choices that sort of, you know, like a, a futuristic star Trek kind of monitor that appears above your desk where you can move things around with your finger, uh, you know, you see that, right? You and, and then you turn either to your computer or however you write. Yeah, maybe you write still longhand. I don't know, right? And then you get going and you put those choices into action. I can imagine, and I've witnessed this as well, that for the novice writer, the choice situation doesn't necessarily naturally lead to excitement. That's that's what we want perhaps that to bring them. But the initial reactions will be more of, and are being overwhelmed, won't they?
1: Oh, absolutely. Actually, it's interesting I um, uh, I start my writing class now by giving uh, students a set of statements about writing, and I ask them to just using a, an online poll anonymously, how much they agree with the statements. And one of them is good writers find writing easy. And another is that good writers enjoy writing. And um, a lot of struggling writers believe, that good writers find it easy, and we see this over and again, over and over again. There's some wonderful research, uh, cognitive uh, strategy instruction research, uh, on young writers. So this isn't graduate students, but young kids. And when a, a young uh, child sees themselves as a weak writer, they a number of um, sort of a number of factors get stuck in their head or a number of preconceptions get stuck in their heads. One is, I find writing hard, so I must be a bad writer. I'm unsuccessful at writing, so I must be a bad writer. And you can see how that's a vicious circle, right? It's a, It spirals down. But the other is, I know there are other people who are good writers. They must find it easy. And I think it's really important that we blow up that myth because for many There are great writers who agonize over every word. There are great academic writers who hate writing. I find that hard to understand. I I actually am one of those weird people who enjoys writing. Um, I really, I I, I usually enjoy writing. Most of my writing I enjoy doing. But I know really proficient writers, writers whose work I greatly expect, uh, greatly respect, who don't like writing. They see it as a chore. They 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 hate doing it. Um, and it's important to understand that finding it easy or enjoying it are not preconditions for being a good writer. Um, I would love my students to enjoy writing. I would love them to get some satisfaction and excitement out of it, but they won't all. Um, and that has to be that has to be okay as well what I I do think is important is that writing is engaging. It has to be intellectually engaging. Um, And that comes back to your point about thinking earlier. And too many writing assignments in ESL, I think, are not intellectually engaging. Um, And too many writing textbooks are not intellectually engaging. They're just doing writing for the sake of doing a particular type of writing. And nobody writes that way. Um, And it's, it's, Boring, frankly. it's well, yeah, meaningless, without with, right? Yeah, I
0: mean without purpose, no point, right? I mean, how exactly. are you going to get somebody to learn something if what you're oh. having them do is just jump through a couple of hoops? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean,
1: and and then you equate writing with as a chore, right? Um, and it, it shouldn't be that way. Writing should be seen as part, as you said earlier, as part of the process of knowledge creation and knowledge dissemination. Um, and not as a hoop to jump through. Uh, but we have to think about how we present writing and how we teach writing. And I'm not going to get into this now, but how we assess writing um, is all part of that. I mean, I, you know, I'm one of those strange people when I was doing my doctorate here, um, the part I enjoyed the most was writing about it. Uh, the, the research and analysis, that was the tedious part. And not the study itself was fun to do, but transcribing these, you know, student papers and student interviews and, and doing the data and the analysis, that was, that was the chore for me. I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I found what I did. Actually writing this out, even though I was only communicating with, you know, four members of the committee and I think my parents did try to read it. Not many people uh, have, have read it, but I, I got a lot of pleasure out of trying to put what I found into words, uh, but not everyone gets that pleasure, and and that's okay as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, for for certain. I mean, I I, I entirely agree that we're not teaching um, or enabling other people to become excited, pleased writers. I mean, that's that's not necessarily the point. I think the the point is far more. That as, as, the word you used before, engaged, yeah, um or even intellectually uh, fruitful work. I think what what I try to do, and I teach primarily natural scientists. I try to sort of convey the idea to to paint the picture that the lab work and the writing of the protocol are continuous. That you know, as you're at your desk, uh, you're not really far from the bench, or if you're writing and recording data, you're literally at the bench. Um, I I make it as as clear as possible that that uh, last essay you did, and I mean that with (laughs) A-S-S-A-Y, so the the, the biological uh, testing methods that they have is much the same as that section of the methods that you're writing right now and in fact the the record of that essay is the same thing as the methods records as 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 the performance of it in the lab um i guess what i'm trying to say is it there there is very often a divide made between the writing up you know the classic writing up stage and finishing and the actual research and the closer the writing gets into the actual research in particular in fields where they're not text bound that the text is not necessarily you know the the focus of the research itself i think the writer is is more served to as you said engage with the writing process itself and engage with the product um, that that is created whether that's excitedly engaged or any other emotional engagement involved as long as it's neutrally in some way seen as doing biology in this case
1: right i mean writing science is doing science right it is part of it it is inseparable um and that's that's a good thing um i think as well it really um helps for writers in the sciences to think and ask the question, what does writing do, right? Not what is writing. So this is the difference between seeing writing as a thing and writing as an action, as a process. Um, And when writing is a thing I have to produce in order to reach a certain goal, right? A certain assessment, pass a certain test, get to a certain level, that's when it becomes at lifeless, I think. When writing is something I do, it's an action. Uh, And I'm very um, sort of excited by this idea of writing as action. uh, Carolyn Miller's classic definition of genre is social action, right? Um, Writing is something that is done. And then you start asking the question of these scientists, okay, so what does writing do? Not just what is it, what does it do? Method sections are fascinating, right? because a methods section is partly a description, partly a narrative, maybe to some extent a justification, because you have to justify what you did and why you did it. But there's some really interesting choices go into methods sections. So canonically, we say, right, the methods section should allow the reader to reproduce the experiment. But I've also worked with um, postdocs and advanced writers who say, well, kind of. Except we're in a very competitive field, so we don't actually want the reader to recreate our experiment exactly, because then they could, you know, they they could beat us to the next discovery. So the the purpose of the methods section there may not be purely to uh, enable replication, or it may not be that at all. It may be actually to demonstrate the expertise or innovation or um level of, of knowledge or technology in in that particular lab and actually there may be a premium placed on making certain parts of the experiment um not completely clear <laughs> and easy to follow
0: so now again we, yeah it, it brings us back to context and, yeah, yeah. I, I'm sorry i i just yeah. want because of what you said there about the methods uh, section and now we understand why we very often shows up in methods sections because it's a unique narrative event. This is what we did, right? I mean, to go along with what you're uh, telling us about, you know, the method section is not merely a protocol to reproduce other studies. It's how we did it and what we achieved. And it's very much so, I would agree with you, our justification for later on our results and our conclusions. Yes,
1: and, and that brings up the other question, right? So the, the question after can I use I is what about passive voice, right? So let's, you know, let, let's 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 deal with the passive voice, right? Because it's you know uh unfairly targeted as as the villain. And of course it isn't. So if you think about you you look at your field and you look at the, the top writers and researchers in your field and you ask yourself, well, do we write method sections in the first person? in the plural first person, because most science is done collaboratively, or do we use the passive voice? And then you ask the question, why? What does that say about knowledge and methods in my field? Does it imply anyone can do it? Does it imply the researcher is unimportant? It's just a process that can be followed? Or particularly in qualitative fields, in in the social sciences, Am I hiding some aspect of the researcher's identity, the researcher's subjectivity, which actually is important? And there's increasing awareness in the social sciences that in a lot of research, the, the, the researcher's identity and the researcher's subjectivity needs to be acknowledged and needs to be recognised as part of the methods because of the influence it can have on the data and the results. And here's another example of where we see genre innovation, where we see those theoretical and methodological and even you know epistemological uh, changes, shifts in attitudes become reflected in the writing. And where are they reflected in the writing? They're reflected in the grammar, the way we use pronouns, the way we use passive voice, the ways we cite. Those are all Choices, right? To come back to this word, I keep hitting, it's all about the choices, and they're choices that are made. It well, shows a of, good title, then. I, I like <laughs> to think so. I, I, uh, I really, uh, I tried hard because you know, and, and the the title came from reading systemic functional linguistics, uh, or at least trying to. It's it's not easy, and and reading in an SFL and reading all this idea about choice. Um, one of the the metaphors that um, is often used to introduce SFL. Um, and the idea of a social semi is the idea of traffic lights. And, you know, if you're completely colorblind, talking about the red light, the, you know, the yellow light, amber light and the green light doesn't mean much. So how do you know which one's the red light? It's the one on top, right? It always is. You can't suddenly, you don't go to another state or I don't, you know, fly to Germany and find that the red light is so- suddenly in the middle, right? So that, that would be very confusing and quite dangerous, right? So. We know that we know what it means because it's not one of the others. There is a system of choices there, and meaning is created because there is systemic choice or a a system of choices. And the same is true in language. the 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 verb tenses have meaning because they're not a different verb tense. There is a whole set of them. When we choose one of them, we're not choosing a different one, and that carries a certain. You know, quotient of meaning, maybe not a huge amount, but it carries a little bit of meaning with it. And all those choices collectively. And that's why we have to look not just at the sentence. I think we we talked earlier about how you can get a little trapped when you only look at the sentence. You have to go beyond the sentence. You have to look at the whole text and you have to be able to have a grammar that goes beyond the clause and sentence level and can operate at the text and discourse level because meaning is not just created in the individual sentence, in the individual clause. It's built up over paragraphs, over whole texts. And again, I I find that fascinating, but I'm a linguist, I would do. I don't expect everyone to find that fascinating, but I I do hope that students can see in that that they, they have some agency that's pretty important and that there are ways that they can make the meanings they want to make, because I think that's what we're trying to do in writing.
0: Yeah, definitely for sure. And, and, and I mean, speaking about SFL concepts that are, you know, as you were saying with the traffic lights, uh, basic, but also at the same time, mind blowing the one, uh, that really got me from uh, which David Banks uh, drew special attention to, but it's, it's really, uh, you know, apparent everywhere, wherever you're reading SFL, is this system that you were talking about. So it's not at the middle, it's at the top, or uh, the past tense has meaning because there's a choice for the present tense, and so on. It's not so much as a tool that we use to create meaning, and this is David Banks's emphasis, it is the meaning. So in other words, the and this this could also excite writers. I would hope, uh, but here here are two linguists talking to each other, so maybe <laughs> maybe it's not possible. Um, the fact that you are engaging in the writing of the thesis at all is already the communication itself. It already is the engagement with your you're doing your field right now. Yes. Yes, and, and, and
1: helping graduate students, doctoral students in particular, understand that this is not a school assignment anymore. Uh, this, is, this is a contribution to the field. That's what the thesis or dissertation is defined as. It is a contribution to the field. And that movement from the recipient of knowledge to the creator of knowledge um, is a difficult transition. And it is a linguistic transition. And it involves being able to um, express authority uh, in writing as well um, one of the the big areas in the book and and in my teaching I'm sure in yours as well Daniel is uh, the idea of hedging and boosting right um, this idea of how we make claims stronger or weaker and this is uh, I think one of the hardest things for um A a novice uh, scholar, a junior scholar, to use Swales and Feek's term, um, to grasp is to what, how how confident can you be? How assertive can you be? Or how much do you need to hedge? You know, again, there's a lot of style guides which tell you don't use these words. They are weasel words, I've heard them called. And this is absurd um, because, you know, as as scientists, as academic writers, uh, as doctoral students, scholars in any field, the more you know, the less confident you are, right? I mean, we, we, you realize you cannot make these absolute grand statements. You have to hedge, you have to limit, you have to be clear to whom you're attributing or to what you're attributing an idea. And this careful uh, dance between hedging and boosting can only happen if you have the set of resources at your fingertips and you know, again, the system of choices, the effect that particular choices will have or may have, I should say, uh, on the reader. And that allows you to position yourself. Again, this is the um, an idea from from Swales and Feig, from academic writing for graduate students. But that idea of using the language to position yourself in relation to your field, to other scholars, to theories or schools or camps of uh, of belief. That's yeah, part not? of the there work.
0: Yeah. You yeah, voilà, there you are. You're in the field. The, uh, this is this is what we're saying. I mean, that positioning itself already means you've entered, yeah. Um uh, uh, William Germano, who I've had on this program a few times, um has recently published on revision and he talks about writing among your readers. Um he had for years talked about the idea of writing for, and I still think that that's a valid idea, but this among was just the right preposition for exactly, I feel, exactly what you're talking about there. Um, That interrelatedness that is involved with your act of putting out this meaning. And back to the idea of the style guide that says don't. I mean, a style guide that says don't really outs itself as a style guide. But what research writers need are meaning guides. And that's clearly what your book is.
1: We're trying to then. And I think the other important term to bring up is the idea of a discourse community. And again, drawing on the research of, of John Swales and, and others, that um, a, as a writer, as a graduate professional or research writer, you're really taking your place within your a particular discourse community. And you may be a member of multiple discourse communities. Most of us are. And what marks a discourse community is a set of shared genres um, some shared expectations, and and often some shared language uses. Um, I think, you know, one thing that um, exercises me, as in gets me riled up, um, are, are those people out there who rather smugly complain about academic writing, and look how obstruse it is, and they're just trying to be difficult, and they're just showing off. And some pretty famous names get into that, and they they, they sort of make fun of academic writing and say, look at me, I don't write like this. Um, and then you go and look at their actual published scientific writing, and actually they do write like that in that context, because, hey, that's that discourse community. And yes, obviously, I could go into engineering or biology or mathematics or linguistics journals and pull sentences to mock and to say, look how many nouns there are here, look how many clauses there are here. But that to me is disingenuous because you're taking something out of its context, out of its discourse community and expecting it to do different work in a different context. Academic writing doesn't work very well in a newspaper, but newspaper writing doesn't work very well in academic writing, not because one is better than the other, one is higher than the other, but because they're doing different things. They have different functions. They exist. uh, They they have different social purposes. Um, And this is something that I think, again, I, I think this is empowering to know this. I think it is engaging for students to know this. I think it is good for them to know uh, it's not just a set of rules I have to follow, but it's a community in which I am participating. And and that's a different framing. So I I love that idea of being among your readers, because that's literally true. The people who are are reading your work, you might be writing a uh, a, a journal review for. You might be their reviewer when they submit a paper, you're their reader when they publish. And then eventually you're citing them and maybe even they're citing you. And there's nothing more exciting than being cited by a scholar you, you respect or set on a pedestal, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, and, and this is one of the strengths of the Miss, Michigan series for English for academic professional purposes, which, which your book uh, is, is um, a part of. And your book itself, of course, uh, grammar choices is that, as you say rightly, I mean, academic writing just gets a bad rap, um, and it's and it's and it brings me back to earlier in the interview. As I said, when people fall back on their English class training as to what is good or bad in writing, right, and they think of you know Mark Twain or Ernest Hemingway or the essays in the New Yorker, and you think. Yeah, no, that's all good stuff. Nothing to be said against it, but it's not going to tell us about quantum physics, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's not going to really advance the next um, innovation in chemical engineering. Um, you know, Mark Twain would agree. <laughs> oh, I, 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 would like to think so. Um, no, I, I, think that's true. And this,
1: this is a, you know, a frustration with a lot of writing textbooks. The texts they give as models are completely unrealistic models, exactly as you say. My students are not going to write articles for the New Yorker. This is not in their future. Um, And to give them those as models is really unfair because you're you're really setting students up for failure there. And one thing I, I wanted to do in Grammar Choices, and I was very careful to do, I do this in all my work where I can, I try to draw examples from the kind of writing students are going to produce. So most of the examples in the book are from corpora. They're from the Michigan Corpus of Upper Level Student Papers, my course. They're from the Corpus of Contemporary American English. They're from playing around with Google Scholar. All their sentences that my students have tried to produce, um, um, you know, my students are thanked in the book because their sentences find their way in, into the book. Um, because that they they're the guide to what I need to teach, right? I, I teach this book. I'm not, I don't just put this stuff out there and never touch it, you know. Hopefully, I, I get to teach it myself, and in this case, I do. Um, but I think it's so important for the examples to be within the students' range. And the book we've just finished, which is going to be called um, Essential Actions for Academic Writing, also from the University of Michigan. If I can put a plug in um, there. Um, Again, we've tried really hard to find short examples and multiple examples of every genre, but examples that are within students' reach. So, a lot of the examples are from published undergraduate writing. So, good quality writing that's just above the student's level. But there's no point in me giving professional, you know, academic writing. And expect first-year undergraduate students to use that as a model because that's not what first-year undergraduate students write. That is uh, completely unreasonable.
0: Yeah, and one of the things keeping them from writing that, and this is this brings me back to the um, closeness between uh, writing and thinking in the field, is that they need to re- they need to have researched more. Yes, they I do. I mean, it's not it's not matters of uh, grammar or uh, vocabulary and so on in the sense that most people think of it in the context of the English language. It's matters of grammar and vocabulary in the field of microbiology. Or name your example. Oh, absolutely. I mean,
1: you you know, you know, can't have a conversation about a topic you know nothing about. Well, I guess you can do, but it wouldn't be a very good conversation, right? Um, and asking students to write, the, the best thing you can do for students if you're a writing teacher, whatever level you're teaching, whoever your students are, I really believe the best thing you can do for students is have them write from a position of expertise, a position of knowledge. Um, Because without that, writing becomes a very bizarre and rather bland exercise. Um, And one thing that we recommend in in the teacher's notes to the book and I recommend in conference presentations and when I talk to colleagues is let students build knowledge. Uh, In SFL, we called it building field right? You're building field knowledge. You're building knowledge of the field of study, of the content, of who the writers are, what the arguments are, how people write, what they write about. Build that and have students write multiple short texts in different genres within the same field, not that kind of um, typical EFL writing textbook, EFL course book, and I've written these as well, where you have a chapter on this and a chapter on that and a chapter on something else, and it's week three, so now we're all biologists, and now it's week five, and we're all writing about architecture. It's very, very hard to write that way because just when you've built enough knowledge to write something with a certain degree of authority, you're off onto something else. So I I, I really like to teach in a thematic way um, where students get to really explore and really dig into a topic um, because, you know, bluntly, you've you got to have something to say.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, what you're what you're uh, saying, this uh, writing from a position of expertise, is the academic reformulation of the old advice given to every fiction writer: write what you know, write what you know, write what you know. Right? What you know. It, right?
1: I, I, but- I just uh, my, my pop culture reference here is if you have not watched the new uh, movie musical of uh, Jonathan Larson's Tick, Tick, Boom, which is his autobiographical musical this is before he wrote rent uh, which is most famous for it's it's a truly wonderful movie and this is a movie about the writing process if ever i saw one Uh, because he writes this you know the whole the whole premise of the movie and the musical, he writes this really bizarre, futuristic, cyberpunk kind of musical. And everyone agrees there is potential here that, that he is going to be a great writer. But this is a terrible, terrible musical. And the advice <laughs> he gets, there is no doubt, the advice he gets is his, his agent basically just sits him down at the end and says, next time, write what you know. And the next show he writes changes the future of musical theatre. That's my other obsession, <laughs> musical theatre. But but then, okay, most of us aren't Jonathan Larson. We're not going to change, you know, the world of microbiology or English for sec- additional English for academic purposes. We're not going to do that. But at the very least, you know, we can work on that precept that write what you know, and if you don't know it, go find out. Go yeah, do the yeah. research. Go do the work. Go read. Go talk to people, and well, then this, go and write something.
0: <laughs> this brings me back to a, a topic that you you shied away from: assessment. Um, and it's not a topic <laughs> I enjoy at all either. Um, nonetheless, I, I would like to hear your opinion on this. I mean, if you are um, even from early on, say even at the undergraduate level, engaging writers uh, from positions their positions of expertise it would seem to me that the writing and the disciplines approach would be a natural corollary to how you would assess the writing. So in other words, I try to plan most of my courses so that the experimental protocols that the, t- that the students are writing, for example, are also being graded in their faculty. So in other oh, words, yeah. the, the the success rate of the grade on the biological side is equivalent to the grade that you get or, uh, how successful you were in the writing course.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a topic that I get, <laughs> I don't know. It's, I always say I love teaching writing. I I'm happy to read and give feedback on students writing. I absolutely hate grading. Um, not, not the reading and the giving feedback part, but the part where you have to grade, gradate, put stuff on a scale, tell someone they've passed or failed. And I've I've, come to resent that part of my work more and more. And I'm more and more influenced these days by ideas of ungrading. And how do we avoid or defer the grade? Because grades do the opposite of everything we've talked about today. They do not motivate. They do not engage. And they send students messages about success and failure. um, And they put however much we might say we're including the process in our grading and our rubrics we're not we're grading products and we're seeing products as finished and we're seeing those products as indicative of a student's ability and that's deeply problematic for me because writing is a a, an ongoing process of development it's a lifelong process of development we know that as writers we're but to to sort of what a grade does is take a snapshot and then it sets that snapshot in stone by calling it an A or a B or 85% or an upper second or whatever grading system you have. Um, And that does a great disservice to students, whether it's a high grade or a low grade. Um, And it turns writing often into writing for the grade. And that has nothing to do with writing to communicate writing to understand ideas. It discourages risk-taking. It penalizes the very things that are at the essence of writing, which is, as you mentioned before, revision. It's getting it wrong. Um, I mean, if you'd read one of the earlier drafts of my book, I don't think I'd be invited to sit down and talk with you. Um, (laughs) You know, I I finally I I always say I've never published the first draft of anything. And I've just written a chapter which was essentially accepted in its first draft. And I'm absolutely stunned. Um, And I'm still not sure if it's any good, to be honest, because everything else I've ever written has been torn apart and put back together again. And it's only then that I think it's in a fit state for anyone else to read it. Um, And I think grading really work and assessment and especially the idea of continually assessing students and then averaging those grades really, really works against what we should be doing as writing teachers. And so what I try to do to the extent I am able within my institutional structures um, is defer that um, and try to put the, the attention and the focus and the energy into teaching and learning and not grade, uh, you know, grading and assessment.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, that's, 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 the, that's really the foundation of the writing center in America, isn't it? To be literally and very often uh, building wise outside of the curriculum, not to be part of the system of grading.
1: Yes, usually and, in the basement, it, in fact.
0: And very often in, yeah, the, the <laughs> less <laughs> the less conducive places. Um, it's also what I meant, though, with the idea of this writing in the disciplines where the grade is actually given elsewhere, and oh, that yeah. is a direct reflection of um, what was then learned in my class, but doesn't need to, you know, I don't need then to take the text in hand and, and, and write these stupid letters or numbers on it, yeah, myself.
1: Yeah, exactly, because... Um... Uh, and and I, I agree. I think the Writing Center is a very interesting model because the Writing Center is, by design, a non-judgmental place, right? You're not there to judge the student's writing. You're not, you're trained even. And I, I really enjoyed working in the Writing Center and learning the pedagogy and the approach there because you're trained as a tutor not to evaluate the text. And as a writing teacher... That's kind of mind-blowing, right? Because that's all we do, right? We evaluate. That's what we're always doing. So when the student asks, is this good or is this bad? You're not supposed to answer that directly. And it's not subterfuge at all. It's very genuine. What you're supposed to say is, as a reader, this is how I responded, which is the most authentic kind of response. And so the more we can... You know, if we can respond to our students as readers, maybe they'll begin to see themselves as writers, um, not just as students, not just as, you know, hamsters in a wheel, um, you know, just trying to get over the next hurdle. I think I'm mixing metaphors very badly there. I apologize. <laughs> um, but, um you know, well, you can if, put
0: little hurdles inside of a hamster cage. That's, I, I, I think guess, that's I, I have acceptable. no idea. I don't
1: have pets. <laughs> pets. Write about what you know, Nigel. Right, so keep away from that. Um, but if we can if we can stop seeing, you know, um, you know, as you said earlier, a bunch of boxes to be be ticked. Um, we've got to get away from that. And if if the purpose of writing is to communicate an idea to a reader then what we should be doing as writers is responding as readers. Now, we do have an institutional duty in most cases to assign grades and to do that kind of work. But even within that, when you look at the ungrading literature, there are ways of doing it in ways that are are compassionate, that are learning-driven and whose purpose is to help the student develop as a writer. Um, and whether that's you know, using portfolio assessment, using self-reflection, having students tell you what they learned, tell you what they're most proud of, that is that should be information I should use. Not just, do they have this number of paragraphs? Do they use cohesive devices? Do they ding, 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 ding? Do they have grammatical quote unquote errors, whatever that means? Uh, do they use academic vocabulary? It's not do they, it's how do they use it? What did they learn from it? And how are students going to take that experience and use it elsewhere? Because as as you were just saying before, in most cases, as writing teachers, as English EAP teachers, our job is often to help students succeed somewhere else. Well, that needs to be the focus then, not on whether I have given you a, a particular grade or number or or letter
0: and this helping to succeed somewhere else brings back sort of a perennial question that 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 in a sense plagues the eap field and it's probably best put this way what what are the writing tutors or the writing professionals or the linguists limits as the non-expert instructing becoming experts in the oh, yeah. field yeah. yeah and i i, I I've, I've talked with this about other people in in, in one uh, a neuroscientist, uh, was was telling me, um, had, I've had him here also on this this program, Bradley Alger, whose book I can only recommend, um, The uh, Scientific Hypothesis. Um, he says that um, it would seem that there needs to be more cooperation between the, the let's say, I'll, I'll just say writing professional, and that will cover all of the linguistic writing tutor or whatever category, and uh, the field expert. Because what he says is, and it was an interesting perspective, he says that if you're relying on the corpus, if you're relying what's been done, then it's possible that you are curtailing the best of how it might be done. So in essence, without being a biologist or an engineer yourself, you may just be perpetuating the conventions that are in effect at the moment. We um, yes. recommend a sort of third-party subject logic checker involved in the study skill zone. And I think that's something that pretty much anyone in that zone would entirely welcome. There should be more of it.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I completely agree there. Um, I would endorse all of that. Um, I think there's a, a few few directions, you know, we need to go with that professionally. Um, one is a degree of humility, in our field, to understand that we don't know what students are going to need to write. We don't know what constitutes effective writing in all different fields. Um, And that for those of us in programs that serve as gatekeepers where we're expected to determine if a student is, quote, unquote, ready, that we need to treat that um, cautiously and with more humility and understand that we may be dealing in our own preconceptions in determining what is readiness. And that's a term that I find very problematic and I struggle with in my own work when I'm called upon to do that. So I think that's part of it. I, I definitely agree that intuitions and corpus analyses need to be checked with actual proficient users of the genre uh, because you don't have that qualitative experiential um understanding of the genre just by looking at the corpus and the numbers. Uh, So um, that's why one thing we need to, to help students do is talk to their faculty, talk to their professors about writing. And we also need to help our colleagues talk about writing. And this is something I do get quite excited about as well. Um, you
0: should. I, I think this is great. That's exactly, but, exactly true. Exactly true.
1: So I, I, as I've been working on this book with Anne Johns and Anne, who is uh, one of the uh, sort of uh, great figures in the field of English for academic purposes and genre-based writing in ESL um, works uh, at San Diego or has worked at San Diego state university. And Anne works a lot with first-year undergraduate students, and she talks a lot about training her students how to ask their professors what they really want from their writing because they don't always tell them, partly because of the idea I said before that it's transparent to them and it's not to the students. And she's told me, I won't steal her thunder, but she told me that she even has her students' role play interactions where they go and ask their teacher effectively how do you want me to write this and i think that's absolutely brilliant that's that's empowerment right um, and i do believe and to come back to the idea of genre awareness genre knowledge what we need to teach in writing classes is genre awareness so that when students encounter a new genre they know how to get the answers they know how to interrogate the syllabus if it's like a U.S. university where you have these massive syllabi that have the information in. They know how to read the assignment prompt. They know how to read the professor, what Anne calls reading the class, which is is so important if you're a novice, especially in a new culture, a new language, or you're a first-generation student, whatever it is, to read the class, read the classroom, understand the expectations. The other side of that collaboration that we need to build with colleagues in the disciplines is helping them understand that if they assign writing, they have to see themselves as writing teachers. And many do not want to for many reasons. It's not my job. That's the writing center. That's the ESL program. I don't have time. Or when you get to it, it often turns to, comes down to, I'm not trained. do this, which is also true. And I have sympathy with all of those responses. I am not criticizing my colleagues at all. But if we don't have some way of having the disciplinary experts make the expectations of writing, the genres of writing in their field, clear and visible to their students, and we as writing instructors don't have some mechanism For hearing that and for learning the different ways that writing is used in the university, then there is going to be a gap, a huge gap between the writing preparation that we're doing and the writing that students are doing in the disciplines. So, this is very much a two way street. And I, yeah, I I endorse any and all efforts (laughs) to have those conversations.
0: I think it's going to come, and I think it's going to have to come, and it's probably going to come institution by institution, because if you look back on scientific fields, it wasn't always the case that, uh, let's say, researchers had the number of courses in ethical research or plagiarism that they do today, because the problem arose to a point that it was unavoidable or that medical students had the number of courses teaching them patient-doctor engagement. Yeah or communication, because it became a problem and people just couldn't ignore it anymore. Or that biologists, after some time, realized, A, they absolutely are dependent on statistics, and B, have a bit of a shaky understanding of it, so statistics become part of their training. (laughs) I think at some point it's going to be that, indeed, writing will as well, to a fuller degree, to this degree where, you know, in 10, 15, 20 years, a... Biology professor won't be saying, "Yeah, but I don't have any background. I have no notion of it, or whatever." Yeah, uh, I need. I think that day needs to come because um, until then, we, we're doing the best job we can. We 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 could we could really cinch it, couldn't we?
1: <laughs> oh, no, I mean, absolutely. And I I think those are really um, apt analogies, actually, to other ways in which doctoral training has changed. And if we see doctoral training as part of the training for future professors and future professionals uh, in academia, that would help. Um, And there are really nice models for this at uh, a number of universities that have been moving uh, in this direction. And I'll also throw in another uh, plug here, another commercial one this time uh, for a Uh, professional group that I I helped to start and is now a a vibrant community, the Consortium on Graduate Communication, which is an international group, although um, we were founded here in the US and Canada. Um, And within uh, the consortium, we, we do encourage these conversations among ourselves, among graduate communication professionals, which I think is a growing subfield and profession maybe even and academic discipline perhaps and also with uh, colleagues across the disciplines and we've had some wonderful conversations um within our um our online community and when we had fa- when face-to-face meetings were a thing uh, and now we do these online um but those are really um vital uh Uh, conversations to have and they're conversations we need to have with senior administrators in universities, because I do agree with you that this will come on an institutional basis. Uh, This is what uh, Jane Freeman, who runs the graduate communication program at uh, the um, uh, University of Toronto, uh, calls educating up. I love that phrase. We have to educate up, educate those above us about the importance of writing and written communication. And finally, I've been pushing for years and years to have a, a writing course for Uh, matriculated graduate students at UD and we finally got that piloted last fall. I'm teaching it in a couple of weeks for the second time and it will be on the books as a permanent course next year and one course by itself is wholly inadequate but it's better than no courses and my hope is this becomes um, the beginning of a whole program um, not offering writing communication in a remedial way or a preparatory way, but alongside the graduate program and ultimately the thesis or dissertation. Because as you said right before, writing and research, writing and scholarship have to be seen as happening together. And students should be able to choose when they need the support with writing. And that's when we need to be there as professionals to say, We can provide this support.
0: And usually the optimal time is when they're most engaged in the writing to get back to our idea of purposes and motivation. A preparatory course when you're in maybe, let's say, your third year of studies for graduate writing, before you've put the pen to graduate writing... (laughs) is yeah of questionable value isn't it right oh um, yes you,
1: you'll you'll need this later you'll thank me when you grow up come on nobody yeah, le- yeah. nobody <laughs> learns that way
0: you know no no well nigel thank you very much you've been very generous with your time i do have one last question for you though um would you uh, welcome a book designed along the parameters of yours but let's say Disciplinarily specific, I'm imagining a grammar choices for molecular biologists or a grammar choices for historians of the Middle Ages.
1: <laughs> that's, that's very specific. I'm not sure you'd sell that one to a publisher, uh, although I, I am a big fan of th- those topics. Um, well, um, that is an extremely uh, interesting question. Um, I'm going to buy myself some time to, th- to think of an answer to it. Um, I... I'm not sure that there is, um, I'm not sure that the differences are stark enough to require that, number one. Number two, I think that because of the growth in interdisciplinary programs and the importance of uh, students being prepared to write, doctoral students and professionals being prepared to write across multiple disciplines and genres, that might be a little limiting. Um, Not everyone ends up in exactly the field they start out in. And I do, to come back to my earlier comment, think there is value for seeing the broader system, even if you are only going to use one part of that system for now. Because you never know what you're going to have to do in the future, so you may have to um, write a blurb.
0: <laughs> you may have to write a
1: blurb. You may have to come on a podcast. You may be called upon to write public, uh, you know, uh, a press release. You may be called upon, as someone who is a career scientist, to suddenly explain something very important to the broader public. And if all you have at your resources is the toolbox that you've used for your very niche field, you may struggle to do that. Not trying to cast aspersions on any (laughs) individuals or professions here, but I think there is value to learning the broad system. What I don't think we should be doing is trying to teach everything in grammar to students who are really trying to figure out how to do academic and professional writing i always joke with grammar choices i tried to write the smallest grammar book on the market i tried to write the thinnest one and it did get longer in the second edition but i think we're still pretty close to that because you know teaching from these 400 page at doorstops i mean they were amazing books and they have so much in them but so much of it is relevant to other registers and to genres my students don't need so i think there's a, a i think It's about finding a balance. On the other hand, I don't think anyone should ever teach everything in a book. There's stuff in here I don't teach, you know, and I wrote it. Um, So I think there's a, a case for selectivity. But I'm not sure whether that level of precision is necessary just for grammar. There are wonderful books written about, you know, guides to writing So I I think we can be specific. On the other hand, I see value in working across disciplines because, again, raising awareness works really well when you have, you know, it it sounds like a joke, right? To have, you've got a, 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 an engineer, a business student, a biologist, a TESOL student, and a philosopher in the room, you know, what happens next? You know, they all walk into a (laughs) bar. Um, But the conversations that emerge and the shock on students' faces, you do that in your field, are wonderful moments and they are light bulbs going off. And they help us all see the complexity, the wonderful complexity um, of academic writing. Frustrating perhaps at times too, um, but there, there is, there, there is, there is joy in that uh, as well. I hope
0: this would seem to be sort of a indirect uh, correction to the concern uh, that some have uh, mentioned, as I I said, Bradley Alger, although I find it valid for sure, that um, the people outside of the field, not being, you know, the experts themselves might not be able to enable the best sort of communication or the innovations that need to be done. The indirect response would appear to be that awareness raising in itself understanding of genre in itself will make adaptable let's call them researchers or thinkers out there and they'll be able to handle whichever genre comes their way or at least have the resources to know how to learn how to handle it
1: that that's exactly right and that's the idea of rhetorical flexibility and not teaching about genre not just teaching genre um and While I may not be an expert, I'm not an expert in my students' genres, let's be honest, and I barely understand the topics some of them are writing about, Um, I, I know a little bit about genre, I know quite a little bit about language. I can prompt them to do this investigation. I can prompt them to be advocates for themselves, to be more effective writers, as you said at the beginning, to be a little bit better, not just at writing, but at understanding how writing works and how it can work for them, that to me really is preparation and and useful preparation at that.
0: Well, thank you very much. Uh, That is Nigel Kaplan, and his book, Grammar Choices for Graduate and Professional Writers, is out with University of Michigan Press. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Nigel. Goodbye.
1: Thank you so much. Goodbye, Daniel. And thank you for a really invigorating conversation. I, I so enjoyed talking to you.
0: That's great. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.